I got a phone call from a man. He said, um, my name is um, Dr. Peter Hackett. I'm calling to see if your daughter Shannon is there. I said, no. I said, you know, why? Who are you? And he said that he, um, he ran a wayward house for girls. Shannon was there. She was upset. He'd given her some uh, medication to calm her down, and he was worried about her. Is she home? I had asked him, how did you get my number? And he told me that, you know, it's, it's, it's the policy that if anyone goes to his, you know, his house, that he has to have contact information. And I knew that was wrong. They say that he's an exaggerator, he likes to put himself in the middle of things, but he's otherwise harmless. And from the facts that I have, that's dramatically untrue. I'm Hannah Green. And I'm Quinn Wolf. And this is Crime Coast. everyone we want to apologize for the delay in getting episode three up we are still trying to get episodes up every other monday and we really appreciate your patience and dedication to the show thanks to those of you who dm'd us emailed us tweeted at us we are still working very hard to get the content put together and to get the episodes out bi-weekly so with that being said we have a particular doctor and some burlap that needs to be discussed Buckle up, because this one's a crazy ride. This episode's going to contain some talk of suicide, so if that's going to upset you, I think maybe it's best that you skip this one. Um, But if it doesn't, strap in. Before we dive back into the case and throw some new players at you, let's just recap the night of Shannon's disappearance. Because remember, she was not found with the four bodies wrapped in burlap on Ocean Parkway. Right, so on May 1st, 2010... In the early hours of the morning, Shannon Gilbert was last seen frantically running around the gated Oak Beach community. She was seen banging on a number of residents' doors, screaming for help. Shannon didn't accept help from the two neighbors who opened the door for her, but she did cross paths with someone else, someone whose property was about 30 yards away from where her body was found. Someone who spoke to her mother Mary before she even knew that Shannon was missing. Dr. Charles Peter Hackett was a longtime resident of Oak Beach, and much like Brewer, he didn't have the best reputation. Yeah, Hackett was just sort of a weird guy. Uh, He was constantly looking to be a savior, but his actions often caused more harm than good. Hackett grew up in Point Lookout, a barrier island community just west of Jones Beach. And remember, Oak Beach is east of Jones Beach, but the two are connected by Ocean Parkway. Oh, so what you're saying is that he has a lifetime of experience in the area, driving down Ocean Parkway, and would definitely know all of the most desolate parts of that beachy strip? Yeah, you're picking up what I'm putting down. Okay, taking it back to the 1990s. (laughs) I digress. The thing about Hackett is that you can never tell when he's telling the truth. 
right, Hackett has a prosthetic leg, and according to Kolker's book, he told people that he was involved in a car accident when he was trying to help a driver in distress on the Northern State Parkway. Which is totally noble if that happened, but we're going to share a few more claims by Hackett about his selflessness and courage. Both of those words are in quotes, by the way. And then you can decide for yourself if they're true or not. I've decided for myself that they're all bullshit. We're going to rattle off a couple of these claims, all of which we got from Kolker's book. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. Okay, so something we can confirm is that Hackett served as the head of Suffolk County EMS for two years in the 90s. He led the response team to the crash of the TWA Flight 800 off of the shore of Montauk in 1996. And Hackett claimed that the hours after Flight 800 exploded, and please get ready for this. The Coast Guard, the whole entire Coast Guard, flew him personally out to the wreckage and lowered him down to the deck of a yacht. And, and, and he swam through the fuel-slicked water to examine a, that's one singular uno, body. The American Coast Guard, yes, the U.S. Coast Guard, denied such a thing happened or that it even would have been possible. Nice. The next year, he resigned due to, quote, policy differences with his superiors, end quote. Right. He had a strict policy of lying, which didn't jive with the Suffolk County. That last line was a joke, by the way. Please don't sue us for libel. But what is not a joke is this next claim. So Hackett told his colleagues he was searching for survivors in the wreckage of a roof collapse in Bayshore. Meanwhile, witnesses of the roof collapse confirmed he was nowhere near the scene. Can you handle one more? Because this is the best one. So before he left that other job with the Suffolk County EMS, he got roasted one last time for interfering in the rescue of three men when he lowered himself into a frigid water tank that collapsed at the MacArthur Airport in Suffolk County. Hackett painted a picture that he nobly and swiftly repelled down the water tank, while others reported that he just climbed down a ladder. His actions were said to have caused injury to those involved. I cannot imagine how slowly he went down that ladder. Yeah, and he denied all of this on his way out the door. Awkward. In 2000, when Hackett was in his mid-40s, he found out he had a congenital heart condition, and he had to have a defibrillator put in that forced him to retire. Thank God. So those are all the tales of Dr. Peter Hackett. Do with it what you will. Oh, but there's also a video of him online faking a heart attack while being interviewed. I beg of you, please go look it up. So, I know you're wondering. Oh, I'm sure you're wondering. What the hell does any of this have to do with Shannon Gilbert? Clearly, Hackett had earned a reputation for spinning stories throughout his neighborhood. Actually, there's a quote from Newsday that describes Hackett as, quote, an erratic would-be hero who embellishes his achievements, end quote. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. Right. So, we can tell that Hackett had a savior complex, and on May 3rd, 2010, two days after Shannon went missing, but... Before she was officially reported missing, Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mom, received a phone call from Dr. Peter Hackett. He claimed that he operated a halfway house for wayward girls, and Shannon had been there, in his house, on the night of May 1st. To reiterate, Shannon's mother had no idea that Shannon was even missing, or that she would have even been in trouble. Right, so what we say next is taken from a court document. Which you can find on LexisNexis or Westlaw. So on that phone call, Hackett told Mary, quote, 
He had tried to help her and he treated her, but she had left with her driver and he was worried about her disappearance, end quote. Well, Hackett adamantly denies these calls happened. Classic. There are, quote, telephone records showing that calls were placed from Dr. Hackett's cell phone on May 3rd, 2010 and from his home phone on May 6th to Mary Gelbert's cell phone. On the latter date, the call was from Dr. Hackett's home phone to Shannon's sister's Cherie's cell phone, end quote. And here's the kicker. During a court proceeding, a bunch of his Oak Beach neighbors signed sworn affidavits claiming that either through Hackett or through word of mouth that they were told, quote, Shannon Gilbert was present at Dr. Hackett's home or was given medication by him the night of her disappearance, end quote. There is also one claim where an individual, while driving past Hackett's house, overheard Hackett flailing against the siding of his house while wailing to his wife that he couldn't believe the situation he had put the family in and that his intention was to help Shannon Gilbert, not kill her. Again, this information is all taken from a state of Shannon Gilbert vs. Hackett 2017. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. So one theory on how Hackett is related to this case is that when Shannon fled Brewer's house in the Oak Beach gated community on May 1st, 2010, and when she was frantically knocking on doors throughout the neighborhood, some believe that she eventually knocked on the door of Peter Hackett as well. And check out our Instagram. We posted a map of Shannon's path the night that she ran through the neighborhood knocking on all the doors. We know that Peter Hackett loved to play the savior. And insert himself where he does not belong. So perhaps he hears this upset young girl running through his community. Or on his police scanner that he frequently monitored. Right. And remember, at this point, multiple people in the community had called the police about Shannon. So could it be possible that in classic Hackett form, he stuck himself where he didn't belong and tried to help Shannon, but just made things worse? I, I think that's why so many people correlate him with this case. Well, aside from the fact that he called Shannon's mom two days after her disappearance, and that he's just generally weird. Another reason why people connect Hackett to this case is because Shannon's body was eventually found in the marsh behind his house. For context, Shannon's body was found a year after the four bodies wrapped in burlap were found on the side of Ocean Parkway. One person who truly believed Hackett was involved was Oak Beach resident Joe Scalisi Jr. Joe Scalisi Jr. lived next door to his father, Joe Scalisi Sr., and his sister in the Oak Beach community. The Scalisi's had lived there since the 1970s and didn't really get along with the rest of the community. And the Scalisi family firmly believed that whoever killed Shannon Gilbert lived in their community. And according to an interview of Joe Scalisi Jr. on A&E's documentary, The Killing Season, the Scalisi's correctly predicted where Shannon's body would be found. They were also not fans of Dr. Peter Hackett. The Scalisi's obviously heard all of the rumors surrounding Shannon's disappearance, including that Hackett was involved. When they finally saw a segment on the news about how Hackett had called Shannon Gilbert's mother Mary before Mary knew Shannon was missing, the Scalisi's decided they wanted to get involved. After hearing how adamantly the Scalisi's felt about Hackett's involvement with Shannon's death, the killing season decided to investigate the doctor's potential involvement. While scouring the web for information about Hackett, the documentarians came across a user on LongIslandSerialKiller.com who seemed to know quite a lot of information. Yeah, this user went by the name FlukeU. That's right, Fluke, like the fish. And in August 2011, FlukeU posted, quote, here's a hint, 
something interesting was found in the doctor's backyard, end quote. And Shannon's belongings and her body were not found until December 2011. So you do the math, but someone clearly knew something before the cops found her or her belongings. When Joe Scalisi Jr. was interviewed for the killing season, they asked him if he was fluke you, and uh, let's just say he does not have a poker face. Do with that what you will. And not for nothing, after the bodies were found, neighbors started noticing that Hackett had Florida plates on his vehicles. Yeah, and that he was trying to sell his house to move down to Florida. Perfect timing, right? So, while Hackett is quite the character, and there's a lot of things you could explain away and convince yourself that he was not involved with Shannon's disappearance, there's one thing you cannot explain away. Right, and that's the phone calls. How on God's green earth did Hackett get the Gilbert's numbers? He had to have had contact with Shannon Gilbert at some point before her disappearance. In order to get their numbers from her cell phone. And he had very limited amount of time to do this because Shannon did not go out to Long Island often. Many of the residents wholeheartedly believed that Hackett was involved, whether it was maliciously or completely benign. Joe Brewer, the last client Shannon ever had and fellow Oak Beach resident, openly stated in an interview with Colker that he knew for a fact that Hackett was involved with Shannon's disappearance. The Hackett rabbit hole just never ends. Hey, remember Peter Hackett, the weird liar who lived in Oak Beach and called Shannon's family before they knew she was missing? Mm, sounds familiar. Okay, well, his backyard was the largest marsh in Oak Beach. It was 49 acres, and according to Colker, it borders the street of Anchor Way, which is the last place Shannon Gilbert was seen alive, and Larboard Court, where the Hackett's lived. Right, and again, to remind you all, this marsh is where Shannon's body was eventually found in December 2011. We think it's really necessary to paint a vivid picture of this marsh, because it truly had a life of its own. And a few theories of Shannon's death are based on the insanity that is this marsh. So, according to our Colker Bible, every time it rains, the marsh would fill up completely, and if it was operating properly, it should drain out through the pipes underneath the roads of Oak Beach. But like most things we've discussed, the marsh draining system didn't operate properly. The pipes were either crushed or would get clogged with sediment. This would lead to the marsh swelling even higher. The grounds around the marsh would become too swampy and full of muck that no Oak Beach resident would even go near it. Kulker described the marsh as, quote, the Frankenstein of plant life, and it was universally avoided by all Oak Beach residents. In the fall of 2011, the marsh pipes responsible for draining the marsh were repaired for the first time in decades. That meant the visibility in the marsh increased substantially. So one morning in December 2011, Suffolk County police decided to venture back into the marsh to search for Shannon. The police, including Officer John Malia and his dog Blue, set out into the marsh. There, they found the fully intact remains of Shannon Gilbert. She was only a few feet from the shoulder of Ocean Parkway. To backtrack a little, they found Shannon's purse first, with her ID inside. Then they found her phone, her shoes, and a pair of torn jeans. After they found her belongings, but before they found her body, Suffolk County Police Department formed a theory of what happened to Shannon. Police Commissioner Richard Dormer stated that Shannon was high that night, paranoid, and that she ran into the marsh. He believed she was able to see the car lights from Ocean Parkway, but because she was so high, she wasn't able to realize that the cars were almost a quarter of a mile away. 
I'm sorry, what headlights? There are probably no cars driving down Ocean Parkway at five in the morning. Dorma concluded that Shannon ventured into the marsh, tripped in the drainage ditch, and drowned. Okay, not to be that guy, but I'm going to throw on my tinfoil hat real quick. According to Coker's book, and amongst other research we've done, we found out the discovery of Shannon's belongings came conveniently close to Dormer's retirement. He was also on the record stating, before they had even began the search of the marsh, that Shannon was definitely in there. Once again, I'm suspicious. Me too. Another weird thing to note is, while Shannon's mother Mary was able to confirm that the phone person jeans definitely belonged to Shannon, she wasn't able to confirm that the shoes found in Oak Beach were hers. Apparently, when Shannon went missing, she was last seen in strappy sandals. And the shoes that the police found in the marsh were ballet flats. Mary Gilbert would go on to say that she thinks Shannon's things were planted in the marsh by Suffolk County Police. She believed that Dormer just wanted to find the remains, say she drowned, and close the case before he retired. I mean, it's plausible. Anything's plausible in this friggin' case. And that's why we made a podcast about it. Digressing. Before Shannon's body was found, Dormer told Colker himself that Shannon's belongings were found right off of, like, a little path. He believed she went down on said path and got disoriented. Something we would really like to emphasize here is, from what we could tell, before she was found, most of law enforcement thought she was high at the time of her disappearance. And not to spoil anything, but spoiler, no alcohol or drugs were found in her system when she was discovered. Yeah, idiots. But let's get into that. On December 13th, 2011, when Shannon's body was found, the police didn't need to wait for a medical report to determine that it was in fact Shannon. The first thing they noticed was the metal plate in her jaw, the one she got after being punched in the face by her longtime boyfriend, Alex Diaz. Her body was about a quarter of a mile away from her belongings. Which kind of destroys Dormer's theory that she could navigate the marsh and just died probably near the small trail where her belongings were found. But that didn't face good old Dormer. He said her belongings were found so far away from her because she was hysterical and just flung them all willy-nilly. He even went on to say it's possible her jeans came off simply from running in that environment. Like the marsh itself took off Shannon's pants. Totally logical and reasonable, Quinn. I don't know what your issue is. Uh, If you couldn't tell from Hannah's tone, this theory was not in fact logical, nor was it reasonable. And Shannon's mother, Mary, thought the same thing. She didn't understand the whole notion that Shannon was in a drug-induced psychosis. Colker did confirm that Mary couldn't wrap her head around this idea. Quote, would a crazy person call 911? That's not a psychotic break. That's genuine terror, end quote. Quote, how could she be crazy enough to pull her jeans off in the marsh, yet rational enough to keep 911 on the phone for 23 minutes? So obviously, since her death was under suspicious circumstances, there was an autopsy done on Shannon Gilbert. Two years to the day from when Shannon went missing, Shannon's family met with Suffolk County Chief Medical Examiner Yvonne Milweski to discuss her findings. The meeting lasted about two and a half hours. As previously mentioned, Shannon was found almost completely intact. Besides a few finger and toe bones, the only notable things missing were two of three hyoid bones. Colker described these bones as the, quote, small fragile bones in the upper part of the neck. A broken hyoid bone is a hallmark of strangulation cases. If we haven't mentioned it before, our bad, but the cause of death for the first four girls was strangulation. 
We have no proof that Shannon's hyoid was broken since it was not there. And while it's possible that these bones were taken away by rodents or just lost in the marsh, it's very strange that there are over 200 bones in the body. And what are the odds that the one bone that could link Shannon's cause of death with the other four was taken away by a rodent? Once again, we are not scientists and we were tipped off to this oddity by Coker's book. Another thing to note from the autopsy is that no trace of cocaine or heavy drug were found in Shannon's body. Which quashes Police Commissioner Dormer's theory that Shannon was high and a maniac and ripping off all her clothes. A quick aside, something else we think is weird is that the medical examiner detective told Gilbert's family that they needed bone marrow to test for more drugs like meth, psychedelics, or pot, but they were unable to get bone marrow out of her femur. I'm sorry, but aren't there two femurs and like 200 other bones? That's what I'm saying. Something to note, the Gilbert family had an independent autopsy done by famed New York City medical examiner, Dr. Michael Baden. Dr. Baden found her death and subsequent decomposition were not consistent with drowning, as Commissioner Dormer theorized. Baden concluded, quote, There is insufficient evidence to determine a definite cause of death, but the autopsy findings are consistent with strangulation, end quote. So we have conflicting reports over Shannon's cause of death. Something else that raises questions is how difficult it would be to navigate through this marsh. Right. Two years after Shannon went missing, her lawyer, along with her family, decided to retrace her steps through the marsh to see if it was possible to drown or die from exposure to the elements. Ray, Shannon's family lawyer, even brought along a young woman who was around the same height and weight as Shannon. According to Kolker's book, it wasn't hard at all to walk through the marsh. Their shoes barely got wet, their sight lines extended over the reeds, and from the thick of it, they could see houses and the highway. Right, and according to Kolker's book, Shannon's family lawyer found it hard to believe that Shannon could have gotten lost at all, and even harder to believe that she died from exposure. Kolker also raised a bunch of valid questions revolving around the fact that we'll never know how Shannon died because all the ways we could have found out were not viable. Right. Her hyoid bones were missing, and they only tested for one drug because they weren't able to find bone marrow in one of her femurs, and they just gave up. Despite having other bones to test, because in case people forgot, her body was found nearly intact, with the exception of those few bones that we mentioned earlier. So John Ray, Shannon's family lawyer, has come to the conclusion that her body was placed in the marsh. On the other hand, the documentarians from the killing season did a similar experiment and found it extremely difficult to navigate through the marsh. They find it very hard to believe that someone could have carried a body out there. So we don't have the answers. We're just here to give you all the information we have so you can decide for yourself. Many pointed out that a year and a half after Shannon went missing, the police randomly decided to check the marsh for her, and then they found her within a week. Again, all of this was occurring very shortly before Dormer's retirement. However, as Kolker pointed out in his book, Shannon was found on the same day that the families of the victims were holding a vigil for the first anniversary of the discovery of the bodies. Now, is that just poetic or is it staged? Great question. So obviously something to point out here, Shannon was not found in a shallow grave on Ocean Parkway, nor was she wrapped in burlap. Which means whoever killed Shannon, if she was killed, seemed to possibly have a different M.O. than the person who killed Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber. So, while Shannon's disappearance is what led to the discovery of four other girls, 
it seems like a very real possibility that she did not meet the same fate as them. To recap, Shannon's disappearance led the police to search the Oak Beach area. This search eventually bled out onto Ocean Parkway, and Officer John Malia and his dog Blue found the four bodies. While looking for Shannon. Right, exactly. So if Shannon never went missing, it's likely these girls may have never been found. So even if Shannon wasn't killed by the same person or didn't die in the same way as the other girls, they're connected. Kolker had a really simple quote in his book, which gave me chills, and he wrote, quote, The girls all found each other, end quote. My heart. On December 14th, 2011, just one day after Shannon's body was discovered in the thick marsh behind Hackett's house, 48-year-old local business empire owner, James J. Bissett III, took his own life near his home in Mattituck on Long Island. Now, don't let the phrase local business empire fool you. This man ran things in Suffolk County. Get ready for this list of businesses. Ready. He owned Treasure Cove Resort Marina in Riverhead, which is about an hour away from Gilgo Beach. He co-owned the Long Island Aquarium and Exhibition Center, also in Riverhead. He built the Hyatt Place East End Hotel in downtown Riverhead. And of course, he owned Bissett's Nursery in Holtzville and in Dix Hills with his family. Both are about 45 minutes to an hour away from Gilgo Beach. But he wasn't just a business owner. He was a staple in the Suffolk County local business community. For reference, the aquarium he owned is an absolute hub for school field trips on Long Island. I genuinely do not know one Long Island kid that did not have to go to that aquarium in elementary school. Facts. But besides being heavily involved in the local business scene, Bissett was also really involved with the Suffolk County Police Department. It has even been reported that he was pals with former Suffolk County Police Department Chief James Burke, who, spoiler, would later become disgraced and investigated by the FBI. Well, how queer. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, this local business guy kills himself 60 miles away a day after Shannon's body was found. Who cares? Me, me, I care. You want to know why? Do tell. Okay, so as we just said, Bissett owned a nursery empire. Uh, nursery as in plant nursery, by the way. Right. So, a reminder, the bodies Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber were found on the side of Ocean Parkway. Correct. And uh, would you happen to remember what their bodies were wrapped in? Burlap. And do you know the only place on Long Island where locals know to get burlap big enough to wrap a body? Bissett's Nursery. And just to add a little more weight to this theory, not only were we told by locals that Bissett's Nursery was the place to get large burlap, but on the documentary The Killing Season, Rachel and Joshua went around the island asking small nursery owners if they sold burlap, and none of them did. All fingers actually pointed to Bissett's Nursery for burlap that was large enough. Yeah, I've been doing contracting on Long Island for about 40 years now. And about 20 years ago, I was had the opportunity to go dig some large arborvitaes for a screening at a project I was doing. So I went to Bissett and rented a, a root ball machine. And they were very large root balls, and I had a hard time finding burlap that would actually cover these in one piece. But uh, lucky enough, Bissett is the one place that I found that had very large burlap. So it worked out well. I returned the machine, and all, all was good. But they did have their supplies. So to recap, a wealthy businessman who owns the only place on Long Island to get the specific type of burlap four bodies were found in kills himself the day after a fifth body was found. Not sus at all. My thoughts exactly. But it gets even more sus 
So in 2013, one of the longtime executives at Bissett's Aquarium also took his own life. On June 13, 2013, 60-year-old Robert Lanieri was found dead of a suspected suicide in his home in Jamesport. And much like Bissett, he had major ties to Suffolk County. Lanieri was at one point the president of the Riverhead Chamber of Commerce, and his wife Diane was a Suffolk County deputy treasurer. So Bissett and Lanieri were business buds, heavily involved in the Suffolk County community, members of the Suffolk County Republican committees, and both killed themselves within two years of each other. And they both had ties to the Suffolk County Police Department. So hypothetically, if Suffolk County Police figured out who Lisk was, and they respected him, and they knew he was dead, would they possibly just try to cover it up? Perhaps not cover it up, but maybe just keep quiet and hope it goes away? It doesn't sound too far-fetched to me. So to be clear, the idea that Bissett is Lisk is an idea that a lot of Long Islanders subscribe to. However, it does seem that a lot uh, surrounding the suspicion of Bissett is founded on local gossip and rumors. One rumor is that he had some victims' numbers in his phone. Another is that he just had a brand new multi-million dollar estate built out in Mattituck, only to kill himself a few months later. But again, these are rumors and nothing has been verified. Just some things we heard through the grapevine. So if the Bissett is Lisk theory doesn't jive with you, here are some others. Bissett was involved with Lisk, knew that this person was Lisk, and Lisk knew that Bissett knew who he was. And when the bodies were found in Burlap, both knew it was a matter of time before the Burlap was traced to Bissett. So, Bissett, in fear of what Lisk would do to him or his family, kills himself. If that theory doesn't work, try this one. Lisk kills Bissett and makes it look like a suicide. Or the police kill Bissett and make it look like a suicide because of Bissett's ties to Chief Burke. But again, all rumors and speculation, but I believe all of them. So to recap, the bodies of four girls, Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber, were found on the side of Ocean Parkway. These girls are all believed to have been killed by the same person, and this person is known as the Long Island serial killer, or Lisk. Ever heard of him? Shannon Gilbert went missing, which eventually led to a search of Ocean Parkway. Which is where the girls' bodies were discovered. However, Shannon's body would not be found for another year in a separate location from the other girls. Therefore, it doesn't seem like she was killed by the same person. Exactly. So this is it, I guess. Five dead girls, two weird guys, a bunch of theories, and no real answers. Oh, Hannah, my sweet dear. You're forgetting. Forgetting what? About the other six bodies found on Ocean Parkway? Oh, right. Next time on Crime Coast. We also want to note that the interview we used at the beginning for the cold open is an interview taken from Crime Watch Daily. We're going to put the link to the YouTube video that we found of the interview in the show notes. So we just want to make sure that we are saying that that was not our interview with Mary Gilbert. We got that interview from Crime Watch Daily. If you or anyone you know has any info about the Long Island serial killer, please contact Suffolk County Crime Stoppers by telephone, dial 1-800-220-TIPS. By text message, text SCPD and your message to CRIMES or 274 
1-800-600-8637 or by email, visit www.tipsubmit.com. All tips will remain anonymous. If you have any questions or comments, or if you have any information that you think should be included in the show, please contact us at crimecoastpod at gmail.com. Music is by Matt Sessions and Andy L. This show was mixed and produced by Hannah Green. This podcast is independently created. It's just the two of us doing this. That means we do all the research, write the scripts, conduct the interviews, and mix and produce the show, all while working full-time and going to school. With that being said, we're trying to put out an episode every Monday. But due to the magnitude of this case, and the work that goes into creating this show, episodes might occasionally be bi-weekly. As much as we'd love to consistently give you a regular episode every week, we'd prefer to have a well-done episode every few weeks rather than a half-baked episode each week. If you like what you're hearing, please give us five stars and subscribe. And please tell your friends and family, significant others, and anyone else about this podcast. It helps our podcast become more discoverable and therefore helps us get the story out. Be sure to check out our Instagram and Twitter at Crime Coast Pod. And please consider joining and donating to our Patreon at Crime Coast Pod. Thank you all for your support and we'll talk to you very soon.